Hi, I'm retired NYPD Detective Vic Ferrari, and welcome to NYPD Through the Looking Glass podcast, where you'll get unique insight into the New York City Police Department. Before we get started, I encourage you to check out my Amazon author page. Type in my name, Vic Ferrari, like the call, where you'll be able to preview all my NYPD books for free, including NYPD Laughing in the Line of Duty, my bestseller. And before we get started, I got the lighting. I look like I have a UFO on me. Sorry about that, folks. Anyway, um, in the upcoming weeks, I'm going to have a really interesting guest on. He's a retired NYPD sergeant. He's worked in a couple of really interesting units, the Missing Persons Unit, the Internal Affairs Division, and he's just written a really great book. I'm going to pick it up this week. It's called All in a Day's Work and Officer's Accounts of... Wait a minute. All in a Day's Work and Officer's Accounts, 20 Years, NYPD. His name is John Fariso, so I encourage you to go on Amazon, give it a look. Looks like an interesting read. Also this week, uh, I got to meet up with a colleague of mine. Uh, he's been a guest on this podcast, and I've been a guest on his podcast a couple of times, Patrick O'Donnell. He has the Cops and Writers podcast, and he also has the Cops and Writers Facebook group. And uh, we, he was in the uh, Sunshine State. He came down from Milwaukee. We went out to dinner the other night. And he gave me this great Tervis tumbler that says City of Milwaukee Police and a police coin. So, Patrick, I know you're going to be watching this. Thank you so much. We had a great time. It was good meeting up with a colleague. And I like meeting up with cops from other police departments. Just change uh, trade ideas and swap war stories. So it, it was a good time. So let's go to the news from the new pages of the New York Post. Arizona prosecutor slams soft on crime Manhattan DA Alan Bragg refuses to send suspect in Soho mo- hotel murder back to New York City. Sad, you can't make this guy's name up. Sad Alamosori, and he's going to be sad, is being held without bail in Arizona on charges he carjacked and stabbed one woman and kidnapped and slashed a McDonald's employee last week, just days after the NYPD says he beat and strangled a woman, an escort, inside a, South, uh, inside a Soho 54 hotel on February 7th. So get this. This guy, he's a suspect in a homicide in a Manhattan hotel. He flees. He goes to Arizona, and this guy's on a one-man crime spree, does a bunch of crap over there in Arizona over the weekend. They catch him. New York City says, well, yeah, you got him on these charges, but the homicide trumps what he did over in Arizona. Do us a favor. We're going to send a couple of detectives over there to extradite him back. And the Arizona DA says, absolutely not. So basically what's going to happen is the Arizona DA is going to prosecute him in Arizona. He's probably going to get 10 years or more, depending on his record there. And then, and only then, New York State can extradite him back to New York City, where he'll be charged with the homicide. It makes sense because what's going on in New York, he might get out on little or no bail. And who the hell wants this guy out on the street? So... Great job by the Arizona prosecutor. I don't have her name in front of me, but I I think that's a smart legal maneuver. Uh, Dramatic confrontation between migrants, illegal aliens, sends NYPD cops to the hospital. Uh, Wait, hold on. Dramatic confrontation between migrants. New York City ends... Dramatic confrontation between migrants and New York City cops at, Randall, at Randall's Island Shelter. 
So I saw a YouTube video of this, and it was ugly. It looked like, again, it looked like the last scene. It, it looked in the opening scene in Scarface where the Cuban, uh, the, the Cuban refugees are fighting and burning that tent city down and it, where Scarface hits Carlos Rabanga. It was ugly. I mean, the cops went in there to break up a fight, and the next thing you know, they're in a fight, and you can just see these cops are so hesitant to use force because they're afraid of being prosecuted or they're afraid of getting put up on department charges. So they're dancing with these guys and the, and these these migrants or illegal aliens are beating the hell out of the cops. At one point, I saw someone throw a chair and hit a female cop in the head before she finally took out her ex, uh, expandable to baton. It, it's just terrible what they're putting the NYPD cops from through. And on a side note, I watched the video, and this has nothing to do, the cops are doing their jobs, but I, I couldn't help but notice what's, what's become of the once proud NYPD uniform. There's so many variations now with the uniform. The cops are wearing these baggy cargo pants, and then they're all wearing these blue skull caps pulled over their head. They look like, like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. You know, I wasn't a fan of the, uh, the eight-point hat, but I guess I'm getting older and ornery in my years. And <laughs> I just, I don't know. I just think that the cops nowadays, they're letting them get away with too much as far as how they dress and their appearance. I mean, now they're finally starting to crack down on facial hair. But, I mean, the NYPD uniform once stood out for something good, and I don't know, it just doesn't look right anymore. Video shows brazen broad daylight heist. New York's uh, New York City Gucci store as bandits make daring getaway with $58,000 in luxury items. All right, so this happened in the meatpacking district on West 14th Street and 9th Avenue. One of the crooks was wearing yellow gloves, held a gun in one hand while pointing pointing at store workers with another, ordering them to get on the floor. This is what happens, and this, I mean, it, I know it's going to be difficult for civilians to put this correlation together, but this is what happens when you don't prosecute quality of life crimes. So shoplifting, little minor things, when you don't start cracking down on that, it just kind of gets worse and worse. And now this isn't regulated to the hood anymore. This is happening in the meatpacking district where you have a lot of people with money, and shame on them if they're voting for this nonsense because... I mean, someone's going to get hurt. People are getting hurt, and it's a shame because the DA's office won't do their job. So on today's episode, uh, people have asked me, uh, was I down at 9-11? That's probably the first thing people ask me because of my age. They look at me, they go, were you down at 9-11? I was down at 9-11, and I've talked about it in other, other interviews, and I was kind of hesitant to talk about it here. Not that it bothers me, but I've told the story so many times, but bear with me. So 9-11 was on a Tuesday, and that particular day, it started, it started off as a crappy day because what wound up happening was that was election day, and I was originally slated to work the election detail, supposed to come in at like 4.30 in the morning and go somewhere out to Queens and stand around like a wooden Indian in a cigar store while people came in and voted at some uh, high school out in Queens. What wound up happening is I got a phone call on Monday from a district attorney. It was either Friday or Monday. I got a call from a district attorney and said, um, I'd like to put uh, – oh, I know what it was. Um, I had locked up this guy who had information on stolen cars. 
And we were going to get him out of jail. He was cooling his heels on Rikers Island. The plan was for myself and my sergeant to go down to court on Monday, uh, Tuesday, and meet with the DA, this guy who's sitting in jail, and his defense attorney. It's called Queen for a Day. It's a proffer hearing. And if he had useful information, we would get him out, and he would work for us. And I think I remember, if memory serves me correctly, he had information on a DMV office in Manhattan that was pumping out driver's licenses. So basically... You went there with a middleman. The middleman would point to the person behind the counter, and you could get a driver's license in any name you wanted, provided you paint, you pass the permit and the driving test. So anyway, I told the DA on Monday. I said, "Yeah, that that that's great. Just uh, put in a notification, and uh, I'll it'll get me out of um, election detail." So later that day on Monday, I get a phone call from the guy that actually sat next to me in my office, who's a great guy, and he's pissed, and he goes. You have court tomorrow? I said, yeah, actually, I do. He goes, you screwed me. I said, oh, don't tell me. He goes, yeah. He goes, now you don't have election duty. He goes, now I have to go. So I felt bad about it. I says, listen, I'll make it. I'll buy you lunch or I'll work the next two details for you. So we worked it out on the phone, but he was not happy with me. So anyway, I come in in Tuesday, bright and early. I got to my office. I started my tour at 7, and the plan was for my sergeant and I to get down to the Manhattan DA's office by 9. So I come in at 7. I'm waiting for my sergeant. Seven turns to eight. Eight turns. Where is this guy? He's just, he got stuck in traffic or whatever. He comes breezing through the door. And now I'm on his ass about it. I'm like, come on, we got to get going. He's like, all right, all right. You can't really push a sergeant around. He was a great guy. And I'm like on his ass. Come on, we got to go. We got to go. Our office was on the second floor of, of the housing police. So while I'm trying to get him motivated to go down to get ready, one of the housing cops runs upstairs and says, hey, put on the news, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. So we put the TV on, and we saw the smoke billowing out of, out of the tower, but we didn't really know what was going on because you have three major airports in the New York City area. You have LaGuardia, Kennedy, and JFK, plus you have Teterboro. You have smaller airports. So we thought it was some, you know, a private jet or some guy with a Cessna that, you know, had a heart attack or engine failure and crashed into the side of the building while we're watching that on tv here comes the second plane and when that hit we just couldn't believe our eyes we're like oh shit this is definitely terrorism so i obviously knew i wasn't going downtown to interview this guy and pull him out of a jail cell so the call comes from one police plaza that everybody get into uniform and on standby so we're just kind of sitting around the office and i remember like none of us had t-shirts because under the, the NYPD uniforms, when they went to that polyester, it, it scratches your skin. So one of the guys ran out of the office and bought a bunch of T-shirts. I remember that white cotton T-shirts to wear underneath. And we're watching it on TV and, you know, the towers come down and we're like, you know, we didn't know what to expect. We're like, we just couldn't fathom what this is. So we all looked, jumped into different cars and we caravaned down there at my office. So we had about 20 detectives and a handful of supervisors, about 25 of us. We go down in, in several cars. And I remember we're driving down there and you just see people coming out of Manhattan, going in every direction but Manhattan. And we went down the West Side Highway, if memory serves me correctly. We park on the West Side and it's just chaos. I mean... There's just dust and debris and papers just flying everywhere. And, you know, the radios, the radio was going crazy. Just there was screaming. And so wound up happening is first, I don't know whose idea it was, but we started walking in. And the closer you got 
to ground zero. Well, no, before that, somebody commandeered a bus. Somehow we all wound up on this tour bus with this bus driver, and he did not want to drive us in there, but kind of talked him into it. And we got really close. And at one point, we drove by one of the buildings was on fire. And it looked like something out of, like, Universal Studios where, like, the flames are coming out of the side of a building. We're like, get, get, get away from that thing. We, we abandoned the bus at some point. And we came in, I think, through Broadway. And what, what, everything is covered in that debris and the dust. And the closer you got to ground zero, the darker it was because of all the particles in the air and the debris. And everything was covered in this, like, toxic ash. And um, they gave us, like, these little paper respirators to what, just pull over your, like a mask, basically. Like, if you were going to demo your bathroom over the weekend, it wasn't, like, a really good respirator, but it was something. It was better than nothing. And the guys were smoking. That's another thing. A couple of guys I worked with, they were big-time smokers. You'd see them pulling the mask down and smoking a cigarette. I'm like, today might be the day to quit smoking. But anyway, we're coming down, again, I think Broadway, and in this toxic ash and dust, I'll never forget, I saw hundreds, if not thousands, of pairs of women's shoes. So women, when they were fleeing to get get out of Manhattan, they couldn't run in their heels, apparently, and then just toss their high-heeled shoes all over the place. So I, I remember that. I remember seeing, like, the, the, the steam carts, like the hot dog vendor carts and stuff. They were all abandoned. And we're coming down Broadway, and they just basically told us, see if you can, if anyone is, you know, hurt or injured, you know, see if you can help them. And we're going down Broadway, and we noticed inside one of the um, big buildings, we saw some of the workers inside, the maintenance workers. So they let us into the building. They had locked it, and they stayed with the building. I mean, they didn't abandon their post, and um, they let us in. They let us use the bathroom. They let us have some water. They gave us some snacks. They were really nice. And I'll never forget this. One of the guys that worked in the building was from Afghanistan. And he's explaining to us about how Al-Qaeda came in and started working with the Taliban. And, like, it was so – I mean, later on we came to find out that everything this guy said was correct. I mean, he was pissed off about al-Qaeda and the Taliban taking over his country, but he explained it to us. Anyway, after we left that building, we got down to ground zero, and I'll never forget. I know it sounds like I'm making this up, but it's not. I mean, it was just chaos down there. I mean, you had all this debris flying around, and as we got up to the pile— it looked like the last scene in Planet of the Apes when Charlton Heston is with Taylor or Nova, whatever. He was Taylor and she was Nova. And they're looking at the Statue of Liberty head on the beach, and he figures out where what, what he's looking at. And it was kind of the same thing because you had this big pile through this haze, and then you had big hunks of that. Um, it looked like an erector set. The facade just like came down and just embedded itself in the concrete and we're just like holy shit like we just couldn't believe what we were looking at so while we're standing there trying to make heads or tails of this some guy in a white suit and it looked like he was carrying a geiger counter just kind of walked past us and we're like now who the hell is this guy i mean you're trying to figure out does he work for the government? Is it, does he work for the State Department, the military? Like, who is this guy? Or is he like some lunatic from New Jersey that had a Geiger counter? And he said, you know what? 
today's the day I'm going to test out this equipment. So we were down there. Oh God. Um, I got down, I was down on the ground by like one in the afternoon. I started my tour at seven in the morning. There really wasn't anyone to help. I mean, it just, we were just wandering around down there. I was there till about, I think they dismissed us five thirty six in the morning. They they took us to the east side of Manhattan, and then they had these guys that had like um, spray bottles, and they were like spraying off our equipment and stuff because we were just covered in this toxic ash. And they told us, "All right, go home. You know, they we go back to your commands up in the Bronx and go home. Run your clothes through a washing machine and be back at your office at five thirty at night. We're going back down the following day." And Next day I was down. The next day um, was a little. It was a little more organized, and you know some of the dust had had settled, but not. It still was flying around. I remember I wound up in a car with um, a lieutenant and a sergeant from another unit, and I just basically sat in the back seat and kept my mouth shut. And I'm sitting back there, and they got the air conditioner on, and I'm like, I know I'm breathing this stuff, even if it's through a mask. Very unhealthy down there. Um, one of the things I picked up, I think it was the first day. I mean, there was debris everywhere and nothing, there was no rhyme or reason to it. Like I remember somebody saw like a, a baseball that might've been on someone's desk. There was a laptop. It was just stuff. Some stuff wasn't broken and destroyed. It looked like going to like a landfill before the garbage, uh, before like, um, a bulldozer knocks everything over. And I remember, I picked up a piece of paper and I was looking for for this interview. And if I find it, I'll, I'll talk about it on another episode. I, I have it to this day. I have a it's an invoice from Cantor Fitzgerald, which unfortunately I think most of that firm perished. And I, I have a, a an invoice from Cantor Fitzgerald with a guy's name on it. And I looked the guy's name up, and he didn't he didn't perish. Thank God. But it was crazy down there, and they had us. Th- they were really good at rotating us in and out. I think I was down there for like the first week. Then they pulled us out and said, go back to doing what you're doing, do enforcement work. Then a couple of weeks later, they had us back down, and then we were on what they call the pile. And what they would do is we were like ants on, on like a pile of sugar. So there'd be like a line of us, and whoever was closest to the pile would fill up like with a shovel and, and um, in like a joint compound bucket that like you would buy at Home Depot. And that would get passed down the line of debris, and then some, someone at the end would sort it out. And, it, I mean, it, after the first couple of days, it rained a couple of times, and then it really smelled down there. I mean, there was really the smell of death. And you got to remember, it was, it was in September, so it was still warm in New York City, so it would rain and then dry out. And the odor was awful. And then um, what, they, what they did was they started, since I worked in the auto crime division, Eventually, they brought in heavy equipment, and then they started pulling out large. It wasn't just you know done by hand anymore. They had bulldozers and all sorts of stuff and cranes, and then they started bringing in dump trucks, and then they started bringing that stuff out to. Um, I think it's called Great Kills or Fresh uh, Great Kills. I think it's called. So there was this big um, landfill in Staten Island that had been closed, but they had to open it to bring all this stuff out there. And once they got in there with the heavy equipment, they started bringing all that crap out there. And, you know, cops and firemen get a lot of credit for being down there on 9-11 and Ground Zero. But you know who doesn't get credit for that? You never hear it once. 
all the people in the trades, all the construction workers, the iron workers, the truck drivers, the crane operators, those guys came in on their own time. And I mean, they were, they, it was just as dangerous for them as it was for us. I mean, they were breathing in that stuff. And you know what? That pile would still be there if it wasn't for them. So shout out to all those union workers and construction workers and iron workers, crane operators. Like I said, they're the, they, they're real heroes. I mean, they're the ones that made it safe for us to get in there. But anyway, so I go out to the dump with my team and that dump, it, it's, so it's a landfill, right? And it's so high up in the air because it's like years of debris piled up. So you're kind of overlooking Staten Island and it's so windy up there. And it's like being on the surface of the moon because it smells. You got all that methane coming up from the ground. It smells like a big fart out there. And they had these um, these um, dump trucks. They're like earth movers. But, I mean, you need like a ladder. You need like a 12-foot ladder to climb into this thing. I would wonder what it would be like to change a tire on one of those things. And they're rolling around. And what they did was they were dumping the debris and then they had a conveyor belt going by really slow. And then they had cops and detectives in like these Tyvek spacesuits going through the debris to see if they could find any valuables or body parts that they could link to a person. What they had us doing out there from auto crime was they were starting to pull up a lot of vehicles, police vehicles, fire trucks, um, just personal vehicles that were parked around there, you know, when the towers went down. So what they had us doing was with like different tools and the jaws of life, we were cutting the vehicles open to make sure no one had perished in none none of the vehicles. And to my knowledge, we didn't find anyone. I don't know if anyone did, but my team certainly didn't. And I was probably out at the dump probably about 20 times, maybe something like that. I mean, that went on for quite some time. But um, as a result of being exposed to all that, unfortunately, there's a lot of cops, firemen, construction workers that have come down with cancers. And they set up this uh, this uh, fund where you go, I get to go every year, I go for a cancer screening, and they send you for blood, urine, a chest x-ray. They ask you a ton of questions. I mean, they're keeping data on it. I mean, if anything's good at that, I'm sure they've learned quite a bit, us being the guinea pigs, through all that. So as a result of that, you've had a lot of people die of mysterious cancers and, and ailments, and it's just terrible. Um, and, and, and what's odd is, I'll, you know, with Facebook sometimes, someone will post a photo of some guy that I was in the police academy with, some guy that I, you know, made an arrest with, or, you know, people I have lost touch with over the years, and it's like, oh, my God, this one died too. And it just goes on and on and on. It's very unfortunate. So... Uh, I don't mean to get everybody down with the story, but a lot of people have written in and asked me a lot of questions about what it was like to be down at Ground Zero with 9-11. So I figured I'd tell my story. I mean, there's a lot more to it. Actually, um, that guest that I was talking about, John Fariso, um, he wants to tell his story about it, and you know, I'd love to hear it. So 
I'll, I'll bring on other guys that'll talk about it. But that's my story as far as you know my involvement at nine eleven and Ground Zero. But there, there were a lot of good people down there that that volunteered their time. Um, they had all sorts of famous people came down there to like kind of keep our keep keep everyone's mood up. Robert De Niro came down there. Billy Baldwin came down there. I mean, I'm sure there was countless others. Um, but again, that's my 9-11 story. So as always, I want to thank everyone for tuning in, especially my friends in Lake Vila, Illinois, Prince Rupert, British Columbia, Leap County, Cork in Ireland, Painesville, Ohio, Oak Park, Illinois, Dayton, Ohio, which that's where John Gruden, the, the former Raider coach, uh, went to school, and Boulder, Colorado, home to Mork and Mindy. If you work in law enforcement or have an interesting criminal background and would like to be a guest on the show, drop me a note on Twitter and Instagram, at VicFerrari50. Speaking of interesting guests, I had my younger brother Fredo on last week, so it's funny. We get off the air, and he's like, that was really great. You know what? I think I'd like to co-host. And I said, really? You'd like to co-host? I can't rent, you know, it's... I've got to call this guy 15 times to get one interview out of him, and he's telling me he's going to put in the time to do to, to co-host. I'd love to have him co-host, but who the hell knows? You never know what my, my younger brother. Um, what else do I got here? Well, thank you for tuning in, and I'll have another episode out next week.